This is the New Yorker Fiction Podcast from The New Yorker magazine. I'm Deborah Treisman, fiction editor at The New Yorker. Each month, we invite a writer to choose a story from the magazine's archives to read and discuss. This month, we're going to hear a story by James McCourt called Kay Wayfaring in Avenged. She whispered, she grasped, she leaped, she plunged again. She became an Avenger. Our reader this month is Hilton Owls, a staff writer and theater critic for The New Yorker. Hilton has been contributing to The New Yorker since 1989, and this is his second appearance on this program. Hi, Hilton. Hello. So James McCourt published his first novel, Mardu Gorgeous, about a fictional opera singer in 1975, and at that time he was championed by a lot of other writers, including Susan Sontag and Harold Bloom, and he followed that ten years later with a story collection, Kay Wayfaring and Avenged, the title story of which we'll be hearing today. And he's published four other books of fiction since then, including Now Voyagers a couple of years ago. How did you first come across his work? I can't remember exactly how I came across Mardu Gorgeous. I think it was handed around among a group of gay men who were opera aficionados and followers of McCourt's career in little magazines. But they had also admired him as a film critic. He used to write for Film Comment and um, a bunch of other magazines and work as a publicist, I think, for films. So he was a figure around town. And then I wrote about Dorothy Dean in the magazine and turned out that he had been a very close friend of hers as well. So he was always someone that I was aware of and whose work was often difficult to find because it was other than the four stories he's published in The New Yorker, largely in small magazines like the Yale Review and so on. So I don't remember, but he was always in the atmosphere and particularly in the gay atmosphere of New York in something that was kind of still underground at that point. Right. Now, he was writing mostly about women yes. in opera and in and in film. Yes. So what, what impact did that have on the gay community? Well, uh... <laughs> <laughs> I think there are a lot of, you know, there are lots of actresses who hang around um, yeah. gay men, and you know me well enough to know that I have several in my life. So <laughs> it's generally, I mean, what I loved about these stories in particular, but in that milieu, there was a big cross current between performance and written work. Not that people were sort of collaborating on plays so much as there was this will to identity, but without saying who you were exactly, because there was still a closeted element outside of the gay world. So you had to find these metaphors to talk about yourself. And I think that that was very parallel to what an actress has to do in order to create a character, which is to sort of find the metaphor of it, as Kay Wayfaring calls it. So a lot of the work is about the the art of self-presentation. And something that is a little bit truth-telling through illusion, I think, that you're able to say who you are through the successive veils of metaphor. And I think that's what I was always attracted to his writing. He also wrote a, a great book about AIDS called Time Remains, in which these characters appear again. So in his fiction, they're almost sort of like serials that you wait for because the characters appear and reappear over and over again. Well, the heroine of this story, Kay Wayfaring, is, as you said, an actress, And when we meet her here, she's on the set of a movie that's being shot in Central Park. Mm -hmm. This is the first Kay Wayfaring story he wrote, but there were about a dozen more that followed. Is there anything else that you think people should know before diving into the story? Take it with a huge 
sense of humor. <laughs> Just throw that sense of humor in a cup of tea and really sit back and relax because he's he's so in control of the language and the atmosphere that there's nothing for us to do but to submit to his <laughs> sense of humor and and also his insight into the process of becoming someone else. Well, we'll talk more after the story. Now here's Hilton Alls reading Kay Wayfaring in Avenged by James McCourt. Sitting shivering in time, Kay Wayfaring brooded. The peak fall day decidedly enhanced her. She considered impetus. October gleamed as it chilled the town. She considered the approach of winter, of the holiday season, yuletide. She considered the picture. Time pressed. Avenged, a costly venture, lingered in production. There they all were, over that way in a sunken, russet glade, occupied in setting up another shot, for Panavision, for art, for success, a decent enough program. A stretch of Morano Plateau in the ramble had been redressed, enhanced. From a promontory just across the gulf from the rock on which Kay sat slouched, a cascade had been installed. Gaffers exerted themselves. The key grip smoked a reel, pensively. Idle gophers exchanged trade news, busily, knowingly. Kay decided avenged might just turn out if, as always if, she plunged, obeying a charged impulse. Smiling, smoking raw luckies on her rock high in the ramble, overlooking the still leaf-cloaked pond, she thought, plunge like the Lorelei, like the Rhine maidens, Velgunda, Voglinda, Flosshilda, and Kay, like Andine, like Rusalka. If only she plunged, darting down into Avenged. Yet, as had been said of one of Houdini's efforts, failure means a drowning death. Kay Wayfaring, one valiant trooper, weighed Candace, her role, the creature. What is there of me and you, you extravagant, driven witch? One sure way to play Candace, Kay knew, was the same way she had phoned in the last few performances. Wayfaring's icy panache. Any unit publicist could, must lately, it appeared, trumpet that quality, the haughty, bewildered, vaguely bruised quality. Kay had no more use for it. Where, in the wayfaring economy, was it? Kay Wayfaring regrouped her forces, seeking, What must I do? What must I? Am I played out? Two words conjoined cheered her, much vaunted. If you're going to be a talking woman, be a triumphant talking woman. Be purposeful, be generous, be all you dare. Might as well go at it tooth and nail. So saying, she plunged to her death, Kay mumbled distractedly. Well... What was the key to it? Above all, she longed to become precise. Precise, that nagging watchword. What did she mean it to mean? The word indicted her, assaulted her time and time again. Things written about her terrified her. Wayfaring understands that no star actress wears anybody else's old hair, her director, Orfrey Wither, had assured the attendant press. Wayfaring is honest in the most arduous way and in the old, perfect manner, 
She understands, as Mrs. Siddons and Peg Woffington apparently did, that honesty is the mark of the star, an enthusiast had scribbled in film opinion. Wayfaring understands that stardom is necessarily vexing. Stars never rest. They merely occasionally lounge, fashion had announced. Wayfaring keeps her interior voyages to herself. Stardom demands secrecy, some wag had snapped, pretending an intimacy. HQP, that seasoned, trusted, metropolitan arbiter and public's gold, had ventured to write of Kay Wayfaring, so on, so forth, vivid and particular. No actress in these past two weary decades has displayed so deft a form. Wayfaring does deliver in the Sullivan, Stanwick, Lombard, Davis tradition, with offhand odd resemblance to, among others, Irene Dunn, Frances Farmer, and eerily Jean Eagles. Kay Wayfaring is something of a navigator. Impetus is her concern. Kay Wayfaring sat perplexed. Others' names surrounded hers. They threatened suffocation. All Kay could say was, I'll have you know. Shading her fortunate eyes, she considered what she had termed self-mockingly the plan, a degree-by-degree personal overhaul, a concerted effort to improve the whole works. She had her qualms. Am I to turn out finally to have been entirely cosmetic? Is one made up of spare parts? What about this equipoise? She brooded. She smoked. She considered avenged. The harried unit publicist release for the first day of shooting had informed the industry. Orfrey Withers avenged, based on a Diderot tale already once brought to the screen as Les Dames de Bois de Boulogne, Robert Brisson, director, France, 1944, and starring the blazing Kay Wayfaring two-time Oscar nominee for We Are Born, We Live, We Die, and for Waystation, is certain to provoke controversy. Such is the valence of the combined powers of Orphy Wither, poet-scripter Jameson O'Morrigan, distinguished British National Theatre actor Patrick Moore, and Kay Wayfaring, that a new meaning is imparted on the screen to revenge. Another dimension is revealed in the geometry of human lust. Never before has desire so bruised, so scalded, so cruelly. Good God, Kay Wayfaring had wondered, What on earth is all that about? That passage offered no key to it, she could tell them. But then, to demand of publicity, keys. Publicity was hearsay. Kay remembered an afternoon in the heated, sweated term of her adolescence when, passing through languid days in Clayton, Georgia, she had come upon herself full face in the smudged upstairs bathroom mirror while overhearing a conversation on the veranda below and had told herself, they pass life discussing weather and traffic, they pass life by, they know no navigation. She had mourned them, while each night the incessant troubled snoring sounded on as groups of guests lay abed, and Kay lay wakeful on the tar roof of the veranda, clad in a lavender-blue silk kimono her father had salvaged from the ruins of imperial Japan, smoking luckies, questioning the starred firmament, Not sure of much, but certain she would either die or up and out, and soon at that either way. She'd sit up smoking, scented with 4711, and braid her rust-red hair, thinking about decisions and feeling histrionic. 
Fuchsia hung in baskets and bougainvillea flourished in the scuppernog arbor. Moths and mosquitoes pestered. The citizens of Clayton wound their watches. Kay halted speculation. Sufficient unto the day, she assured herself, remembering one of her good mother's better maxims. And then she looked out over the park, which, from her perch there on the highest rock in the ramble, gave the impression of Cythera. And with the boat lake stretching out to the south and west in a serpentine swirl, of voyages there too. She thought of Ariadne, Ariadne on Naxos, Ariadne, the labyrinth guide. The very Kay Wayfaring sneezed. As if summoned, Avenged Director, the Olympian Orphrey Wither, loomed like Bacchus, blocking the sun's rays in the west and the entire view of the Dakota apartments where Kay had been installed for the picture's term in a gable. Kay had decided long since that whenever she considered this O.W., having summoned him for conversation in the daytime or yakking on the telephone with him on a restless night, she considered him in terms of cubits rather than weights and measures, such as feet, inches, pounds, stone, meters, or kilos. Orphe Wither could glower, so he did. Kay counseled herself, men are not gods. May one know what you're up to this time, Miss Wayfaring? The Corconian growl sounded like something from a cave or up out of a well, or like oracular sap gushing forth from some druidic oak. Giving myself a piece of my mind, such as it is, the Wayfaring Contralto countered. Actors! I'm an actress. Don't quibble. Get lost. How dare you! Orphrey, you don't begin to terrify me. This is insupportable, not in good light. What on earth can you mean? I mean avenged, exactly. Now look. I've been looking. I could replace you, you realize that. You might be quite interesting as Candace wearing Wayfaring's old hair. Orphrey Wither turned away. He pounded down the scaffold steps leading from the rock to the glade. The ramble's shadows lengthened. Kay Wayfaring considered the sweat of endeavor, phrases, facts, fancies, options, shadow aspects, libidinal commitment, free-floating anxiety, feeling edgy of an afternoon in fall, phase-specific turmoil states, all this nervous bravado, an open declaration, passions, choices, the bottom line, Ariadne occupied, spinning threads. I'm obviously frantic, she advised herself severely. What must I do? The light continued failing. She suddenly faintly remembered the way out is the way in. Kay Wayfaring set out to explore creation. She stalked the ramble like some predator, all the while considering and all the while as well singing measuredly sotto voce, the aria, Che Faro Senza Eurydice, from Gluck's Orfeo Ed Eurydice, a familiar exercise. She fancied it best sung for her intense purposes in English, the way Kathleen Ferrier had sung it on records and the way Mardu Gorgias Ultrano had sung it when, when she, Kay, had been a drama student at Yale and the diva had arrived one evening in October to give a recital at Woolsey Hall. Thus wayfaring, rambling, sang, What is life to me without thee? What is life when thou art dead? Candace, an heiress, hell-bent on revenge.
The impetus of her resolve thwarted passion. Very much the same old story, Kay thought, singing a variation. What is life if thou desert me? Candace is avenged by arranging a marriage. A good one, that, thought Kay, who had never married. She had loved, lost, loved, managed, loved, survived, loved, and stopped, yet not necessarily. Kay thought it through and asked herself, Who wrote the very first torch song? What is life when thou art dead? The rambles tangled byways offered Kay opportunity for exercise and for contemplation. A serviceable glamour, that's what I've hawked, she told herself, turning grouchy, feeling bruised, annoyed at the way branches would now and again protrude like pointing fingers. Candace plots, succeeds, avenges, all to no good, to no success, avenged, a remake, so, so what, so was the letter. If I don't kill you, who will? Good God, where did that one bubble up from? That tagline from Way Station, the film for which she had won her second Academy nomination. Lost it that year, too, to another lesser actress. But on, press on. The ramble's explosive foliage gave little solace. What is life to me without me? I, I, me, me, I, me, I. Oh, dear God, not just now, Kay prayed, fending off as best she could a waking, walking nightmare of the omnivorous self. Riders on horseback passed over a bridge ahead. Time passed, and Kay Wayfaring succeeded briefly at her task. She had returned to avenged, deciding, remembering, along the winding footpath. She then suddenly came upon some twerp. He'd been tossed off his mount. The horse looked bewildered. The twerp, muddily abashed. Oh, thanks. I'm okay. Hey, aren't you? Once, long ago. Excuse me? That's all right. Hope you feel better later. Your horse is expecting you. So long now. Kay considered another more sinister creature whom she had labeled the morning interloper. Promptly at seven, when Miss Wayfaring had checked into her trailer to prepare for the scene in which Candace, off at a gallop across the sheep meadow, plotted and replotted her weird, obsessive revenge, in heavy-lidded, slow-eyed, relentless close-up, looking pummeled, looking dredged. There would be the same diminutive, wiry man, some old moon-pix, magnet's nephew or cousin, or collateral offspring. Orfrey was aware of the precise connection. He considered it politic to allow the man some notion of privileged entry. Miss Wayfaring was neither amused nor flattered, the intruder resembled a wandering dress extra. He could hardly be entertained seriously, cordially. Keep that lurking item away from me, the star had commanded. She remembered a violent summer storm in Clayton. Thunder, lightning, wind and rain, a tempest. She had sat the whole show out on the veranda roof. And then, when the moon came up, a visitor had approached her. Some guest's son or nephew or cousin a passably winsome boy. Got a smoke? They're wet. So are you. Why don't you go take a walk? Why don't you? I live here. I was only trying to be friendly. You want to get friendly, go find a dry cigarette. Who told you you're such hot stuff? Look, this is my roof. Get lost. The boy departed. K 
Kay ever after regretted the way she had banished the guests that night after the storm. She had been deliberately and stupidly cruel. Dissolve, wipe. A new instant, another time. Kay wayfaring, seeking, delving, wanting out occasionally, out of histrionic guile. Do wash the ink off your hands. Don't try to get too much in. There is weight and there is clutter. Distinguish them, distinguish them. The way out is the way in. These had been the four best directives offered by the exacting Miss C.W., Kay's teacher at Yale. Kay, in improvisation, would talk on and on. I've got a fat trap, that's what. I should shut up. I know I should. But there are times when I cannot think of a single thing not to say. Miss C.W. would remonstrate, do wash the ink off your hands. Kay Wayfaring, two-time Oscar nominee, star, who never wore anybody else's old hair, wondered, how long would the luck hold out? When the descent? When would it end? How fast? How soon? A trashy inquisition. She decided to forbear. Better to go down hailing a taxi than to end it all in some back row looking at Kay Wayfaring in Avenged. She remembered her first days in New York City. She had been invited to a village party just off 7th Avenue, just south of Sheridan Square. She had accepted. She had attended. She had become the sudden, spectacular rage. Just then, in the ramble, remembering, she fetched it back. She had been sitting at an open window high up, south of Sheridan Square, and talking to herself. I am a fragile vixen, and I prefer the dawn to the day. A ghastly line from some Yale vehicle. I'm naked, she'd called out the window. She saw out, and she saw in. They were strewn about the floor, the rest, all victims, all snoring. She scribbled a note on the back of some stern manifesto and sent it sailing, folded, into an origami airplane down toward 7th Avenue. Two Schlitz and a pack of luckies, bless you, abandoned in 13G. The note never made it to the avenue. It caught a crosswind, then a tailwind, and flew off toward the Midwest. She laughed. She rose. She looked about the room and she saw a microphone on a throw pillow. The cassette recorder sat there on the floor with a quantity of her madness spooled on it, and most probably vaster quantities of the others. She rewound the cassette and sat listening to the playback. Snorers tossed and stirred from time to time. She listened to the section where someone had begged them all to join hands and hold their breaths, and then, hmm. She listened to humming, then to silence, then to her own hysterical laughter, then to slamming doors, somebody exiting enraged. Then she decided to hear no more. Kay decided it was high time to head back, all told. Enough of reminiscence. From such deliberate delving, from such a determined, willing plunge, one might develop on the way up to the surface to what is casually termed the present, a severe case of the bends. Miss Wayfaring sallied forth like Mrs. Millamont in full sail. Here she comes back, she advised creation. Creation, entirely pleased, welcomed her at sundown. The way the last rays available from the sun setting in the west splashed her in vermilion, momentary raiment, 
all filmable as halos briefly are, caused her to gleam. Her flaring, involved radiance matched creation's resources. She resembled some swan gliding along on a mill race. Her arching neck, thrust out in the very way she had determined ages ago it ought to thrust, signaled the very K-wayfaring voyaging to Scythera and back. She planned ahead. She had always specialized in fast, fabulous results, achieved while sailing through the lengths of fast, fabulous afternoons. Suddenly she had begun to question them all, the way she had begun to question the difference, for example, between self-serving, not nice, and help yourself, fine. Was she as good as could be? Why did she suffer so from ill-defined predilective disorders? When would she make up her mind? In the cold, clear light of dawn? Why the gods above me? Who must be in the know? How can I get along now? Others find peace of mind in pretending. What is life to me without thee? Had it all been said, all done? Kay recalled talking back to one self-styled wise old fool years before and insisting. It may have all been said before, but not to me. The old fool had nodded gravely. Kay Wayfaring broke her defiant, thoroughbred stride. She sauntered. She relaxed. She calmed herself. Having plunged, Miss Wayfaring had just surfaced. Back on the set, Orfrey Wither had set about bullying Patrick Moore, the leading man. They stepped aside as Gaffer's adjusted apparatus. Miss Wayfaring crossed, nodding to her trailer. Moments passed. The scene between Candace and Hugh, the dupe, was set to roll at the cascade. Orphy Wither seized control. Overture and beginners, he bellowed. Jameson O'Morrigan had written in the original treatment, moments, events implode, all shaping, avenged. Haunting, disembodied voices of the eternal New York night, Consoling and menacing, counterpoint Candace's seizure. They are all matched to the faces of nameless lovers, careless assassins, on which collection, from shot to shot, is superimposed the furious face of Kay Wayfaring, as Candace, determined to be avenged, her face set against the New York skyline, face and skyline, twin emblems of the city as woman and as dream. Playing the scene, Kay, weaving, sinuous, reached out. She whispered, she grasped, she leaped, she plunged again. She became an avenger. Orphy Wither, holding a two-shot, quaked. This was a moment he'd dreamed he might capture on film one day, the wail of the city endlessly dreaming itself. Cut! Will that do, Mr. Wither? That will suffice, Miss Wayfaring. Take ten. I'll take a dozen. Will that do? It was a perfect take, and what's more, you know it was. Now go and congratulate yourself. I owe it all to my director. Get lost. I've been lost. They all laughed. They all took ten. Kay took a recess in her trailer. She invited Orfrey, Jameson, and Patrick Moore in for cocktails. They lounged briefly, telling stories, each sipping a wayfaring concocted sidecar, then each sipping a second. They toasted one another, and there, 
avenged. Then it was time for the long wayfaring solo turn. The star belted back a straight Hennessy against the October evening chill. She exited and strode to her mark. All right, wayfaring, she ordered herself. Navigate. She knew what she meant to do. She thought she just might at that. She thought she might just as well. She lit one of her necessary luckies, took a puff, and stamped it out, letting go, as the bell rang for her to commence. In the elaborate tracking sequence set to roll, Candace was to cross out of the ramble and over the Boat Lake Bridge, and then, after a cut to the top of the stone staircase leading down to Bethesda Fountain, lope at a purposed, anguished pace into hell, the ruined piazza. One shot was to be held so that her feet, legs, torso, and face would pass in vertical review, revealing the woman hounded down by torment, driven to distraction at the reflecting pool over which an anonymous angel, whose name Kay had decided was Victory, stands adamant sentinel, Candace fleeing the camera, her accuser. As Kay Wayfaring progressed, light poured down on her from arc lamp sources above, while the crane-mounted Panavision cameras rolled slowly alongside. One camera, its lens set to zoom when required, moved backward on a car some fair distance in front of her. Faces of onlookers bobbed back and forth from up on the rocks, floating in her field of vision like odd carnival balloons. It was a long and terrifying walk, freed from wordage, no longer a talking woman at all, she became gesture unbound, expanding, toiling, the very Kay Wayfaring. Jameson O'Morrigan scanned the action from the rocks above, amazed, as the actress, glancing from side to side time and again, enacting Candace seeking assistance from infernal gods, seemed to recognize a face, a presence here and there in the October dusk. What a show! What's she up to? the poet blurted out. The next morning's rushes would certainly present evidence of obsession. What an oracular performer Kay Wayfaring had become. What abandon, what calculation. Kay Wayfaring, Voyager. She'd set her way, now she progressed. Replaying the day, the week, the life, she altered expression rapidly time and again. She was certain and she was correct. What a way to live a life. Here were stairs, no halting whatever. Like a deer trapped in headlights glare on a country road at night in the shooting season, she, startled, surrendered. She looked across at the Dakota. The way out is the way in. She stood dead still for a moment on her mark at the top of the stone steps. Orphrey and Victory beckoned from below. Blindly, she began the stumbling descent. Camera's position below whirred. Down she fled. Her face became the face of death's own head. She looked again across toward the Dakota. It was not there. She hit bottom. Raising her arms slowly, Kay Wayfaring flung her body down at the Bethesda Fountain's stone-rimmed basin. Then she leaned forward, looking into the reflecting pool. Orphe Withers shouted, Cut! Such was the work of that day.
That was Hilton Owls reading James McCourt's story, K. Wayfaring in Avenged, which is collected in a book of the same title that was published by Knopf. Hi, I'm Deborah Treisman, fiction editor of The New Yorker. Each week on the Writer's Voice podcast, New Yorker fiction writers read their newly published stories from the magazine. You can hear from authors like Colson Whitehead. Turner nudged Elwood, who had a look of horror on his face. They saw it. Griff wasn't going down. He was going to go for it, no matter what happened after. Or Joy Williams. Her father was silent. Slowly, he passed his hand over his hair. This usually meant that he was traveling to a place immune to her presence, a place that indeed contradicted her presence. She might as well go to lunch. Listen to new stories or dive into our archive of great fiction. You can find the work of your favorite fiction writers and discover new ones. Listen and follow The Writer's Voice wherever you get your podcasts. So, Hilton, when you first suggested reading this story, you used the words unforgettable and mind-blowing and hilarious to describe it. So what is it that makes it all of those things for you? I think one of the hardest things to do in prose is to take a reader by the hand and let them visualize things so deeply that the surface of a story just vibrates and lives. And I think his sense of detail is inseparable from his sense of the tricks that language can play on the reader's imagination, let alone the characters. So his alliteration, I think, is often very funny. And the leaps that the character makes between the past and the present, um, between her Southern upbringing and imagining that she's already a star and behaving like one and actually being a star. There are layers upon layers of false and real self-presentation going on. She's telling the truth of her character, Candace. She's telling the reader the autobiographical truth of herself, even as we see her becoming... I wouldn't say affected at all, but aware of her role as an actress. So she's an actress who's acting a role while playing an actress. <laughs> <laughs> and remembering who she used to be. Yeah, exactly. The story wouldn't have worked if he hadn't gone back to her past to show us who she was. I think he lifts the curtain very elegantly on her past self, and it descends very elegantly on her present self so that we're always certain that it's not really just a figment of his imagination, but she has a life separate from the author. Mm -hmm. And I think um, he does that brilliantly. Interestingly, I talked to uh, James McCourt last week a little bit, and he told me something about how the idea for Wayfaring came to him. Uh At the time, he knew Veronica Gang, who was an editor here at The New Yorker and who who was his editor. Yes. And I think they took a walk one day, and she asked him what he was really interested in, and he said Faye Dunaway. Yeah. Oh. And um, she also happened to mention that she, Veronica, came from Georgia. Yes. And in his mind, these two things melded, and this That's character right. grew out of Veronica Gang and, and Faye Dunaway. Do you see... I mean, you knew Veronica Gang a yes. little bit. Yes. Do you see her in Kay? Definitely the smoking, and, <laughs> um, and definitely the pondering. And interestingly, I spent... Oh, you're going to make me cry. But I spent an afternoon with Veronica Gang in Central Park once, and she was reading a story of mine. 
I had not even put those things together until mm-hmm. this moment. I'm very moved. Uh, maybe this is a a little tribute to Veronica as well mm-hmm. um, to have read the story and the Veronica gods might have lit down on my little head and told me to read it. So, <laughs> so that's lovely. And she was a very strong personality. Very funny and very yeah. strong and uh, very short and very opinionated, <laughs> but but often very attractive to men because of a kind of the allure that he's talking about in the story. It's funny. I never, I didn't know that. Yeah. But it makes sense completely. What do you think is going on in, in Kay Wayfaring's mind in this story? She's got this constant internal monologue in which she's thinking and questioning mm-hmm. and changing her mind. Where is she trying to go? I think that he says it fairly explicitly when she says, where was it? Where was the inspiration that she needed to become not just Candace, but to show the camera and thus the world a feeling that she didn't have herself as a mm-hmm. person. How do you imagine a feeling that you haven't had? This is vexing to writers and to actresses in particular because they have to show they have to show a backstory. And if you haven't had that experience of being vengeful, which Kay Wayfaring isn't, where does that come from in yourself? And I think by showing her past and by showing her interest in allure, she's able to sort of go into other areas of life, like the party at Sheridan Square and sort of being mean to the little boy when he comes up for a cigarette and so on. She finds those elements of the past to use in the present in this character that bears no relationship to her. I think she calls it an extravagant witch at some point. Mm -hmm. So I think the story is about process. And if you know an actress, it can actually drive you crazy to listen to them talk about this very thing that he's writing about, which is um, how do I go from A to Z and transmogrify not only my body, but my mind. Mm -hmm. It's really a story about changing and developing and becoming, becoming. Right. I mean, there's this constant motif of vocabulary of travel, you know, yes. wayfaring. She's, she's exactly. navigating, navigate, navigate, exactly. you know. Exactly. Um, she's wandering. She's doing all these things. And I suppose the answer to where is into this role to yes. inhabit this, yes. this character. Yes. Yeah. McCourt also mentioned to me when I talked to him mm. that the movie she's in, well, the movie is based on two things. One is explicit in the story. It's yes. based on this Bresson film. It, La, it's great. La La Dame Dame. Yes, yeah, great. Which is the story of a woman spurned who tricks yes. the man into marrying a prostitute yes. without his knowledge. And that's her revenge, yes. her fierce revenge. But he said it was also based on a movie by uh, Holly Woodlawn, who was you know, a Warhol, a, a, transvestite. A Warhol yeah. transvestite performer, who made this film called Broken Goddess in 1973, in which she flings herself down the steps at the Bethesda fountain <laughs> and has a revelation while looking into the pool. Oh, I didn't know that. And I think maybe that sort of pulls it back to what you were saying about writing about the gay community and having to do it through this sort of veil of other yes. things. Yes. Do I mean, too, the poet Richard Howard told me recently that he had a straight male friend, and they were talking about Tennessee Williams, and uh, when Williams wrote Cat and Hot Tin Roof, the friend said, oh, now that, now he's writing real plays, no longer... He's not writing about queer stuff through the guise of women and so on. And, of course, Williams would take great exception to, he said, if I'm going to write a female character, I'm writing a female character. And I think McCourt writes an incredibly strong female character in Kay Wayfaring, but he also simultaneously, because he's more intellectually inclined than Williams, gets to talk about 
his community and not legitimize it so much as uh, kind of put one over on the reader, the general reader who is not from that world. Right. I think it's very subversive yeah. on his yeah. part. And, you know, Kay is a serious character and she's someone whose journey we take seriously. Yes. At the same time, there's a bit of a spoof of Hollywood going on totally. here, particularly with the director. And particularly a press agents and so on. Yeah, yeah. Um, you can never believe anything that comes out of publicity. <laughs> exactly. It's all you say. <laughs> exactly. The writer Dennis Cooper said of McCourt that he's someone who's willing to perplex the reader. Yes. And there are parts of the story that are sort of perplexing. I have to read four or five times to kind of piece together yes. how they're working with what came before, what came after. Yes. What do you think that, that perplexity does for the story? I think that there should always be room for mystery and everything. And I don't think we're put on God's green earth to understand everything. As you know, as my editor, I, I don't really have any problem with things being obscure <laughs> at times because they're obscure to the writer, you know, or they're obscure to the character. So I think it's only fair to say that if, if there are elements in the story that are obscure, I think that's part of the temperature of the story. Getting back to this idea that McCourt was thinking about Broken Goddess and, and Hollywood Lawn, this movie is a big Hollywood production and in the later Kay Wayfaring stories, she becomes a bit of a kind of Norma Desmond figure. She yes. sort of goes out big and bitter. Yes. <laughs> yeah. He has that line in the story where uh, he said, better, go, better to go out hailing a cab than sitting and watching Kay Wayfaring and Avenged. Right. But she rather, but she, does. She, does, she goes out the second way more. Yeah. 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 What, do you, what do you think of all the stories that followed this one? I loved the initial book and then I loved... The New Yorker published very long sections of subsequent K Wayfaring stories, and I loved how he had her in Hollywood. And I think that her anger and frustration was a metaphor for how do you make art in that business. So she had come in to movie making as an artist, and then she wanted to leave as an artist, but the industry changed, and she had no control. So... The tragedy is, for Kay anyway, is how do you maintain your artistry in an industrialized world? And I think that's her mm-hmm. her sadness, mm-hmm. really. But I preferred the happy Kay um, <laughs> and the working Kay. Yeah, so yeah. the stories that are later sort of dovetail into his discussion about AIDS for me. So mm-hmm. I tend to uh, feel that the events that he talks about later in his work, become much more somber. Mm -hmm. And um, I think I chose this story in particular because it was a moment in history where it was possible to be more loving. A very very finite moment. Yes, where it was possible to be loving and open with your kind. Yeah. Yeah. And you're someone who you write regularly about performance. Mm -hmm. Did McCourt's approach to writing about performance have an influence on you? I'm sure it did because when... This interview is the occasion for many revelations because um, I noticed his way of cutting between the past and the present had completely influenced me. And also, how do you keep one tone throughout the many shifts of consciousness? And I realized that that had had a big effect on me in terms of structuring the mm-hmm. story, mm-hmm. how to have an evenness of tone while you shift perspective. Well, thank you so much. My pleasure. Hilton Owls is a staff writer for The New Yorker. You can hear authors read their own stories in the iPad edition of the magazine, which you can find in the iTunes App Store. 
You can subscribe to this podcast and download previous episodes in the iTunes store. Just do a search for New Yorker. And let us know what you think of this program on our Facebook page. You can also download the weekly audio edition of The New Yorker through iTunes or Audible.com. The New Yorker Fiction Podcast is produced by NewYorker.com and Curtis Fox Productions. I'm Deborah Treisman. Thanks for listening.